Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The young man walks alone down a long, dark corridor. The year? The 1698, the place, France's most infamous prison, the Bastille. The young man is a new guard, fresh into his role as an officer of the battalion of soldiers stationed there, but this assignment today seems relatively mundane, delivering food to a new arrival. His journey takes him down the long corridor, but then into an area of the prison he didn't even know existed. After climbing a long, winding staircase, he arrives at an even longer corridor, darker yet than the first. At the end of the corridor is a lone door, its dark silhouette stark against the shadows playing eerily off the stone walls. One man stands in the hallway, and when he arrives at the top of the stairs, the figure approaches him. But the figure isn't what the young officer expects. This man ahead of him is older, middle-aged, and clearly a nobleman, no ordinary jailer, Maybe more like a special caretaker? The nobleman speaks in hushed tones. Listen to me very carefully. You go in, give him his food, and leave. Don't look at him, don't make eye contact, and above all, don't talk to him. If he asks you about anything other than the most basic of his needs, tell me immediately. With a nod, the apparent jailer unlocks the heavy, dark door, and then another door and another door behind that both stronger than the first door and the door before it. The boy then steps into the room. The cell is spartan, walls bare cracked stone, no windows. If you didn't know where to find it, you wouldn't even know that this cell existed. And there, at the far end of the room, sat patiently on a small wooden bed, is the prisoner. A dark shroud encloses his face, In the dim candlelight, it's hard to tell what it's made of. Cloth? Maybe metal? Whatever it is, the mask shrouds his identity, leaving only his piercing eyes visible, mesmerizing as the shadows flicker and dance around him. As the boy approaches the prisoner, he feels his pulse raise. He's armed and the prisoner is still, but that's the silent patience that scares him. Who is this man? The boy moves to put the tray of meager food down, and as he does, the man stares deep into his eyes. For a moment, it feels as if his very soul is being searched, scrutinized by this inscrutable monster. The boy's paralyzed, unable to move or speak save for one question. Who are you? The man makes no reply. As the deafening silence threatens to crush him, the boy hears a loud banging on the door, the sound of a truncheon on metal. And as the boy exits the room, giving one final glance at the cell, the older man grabs him firmly and tells him that his services will no longer be required in this sector of the prison, that he's to go back to his regular duties and speak nothing of what he saw on pain of death. As the boy meekly departs the prison that evening for his lodgings, He can't help but wonder, 
as he walks down the streets of Paris and stares deep into the River Seine, dappled with the glow of the moonlight, he has one thought consuming his mind. Who was the man in the iron mask? Hello and welcome to Demystified with me, Ashley Styles. Now I hope that little uh, snippet there was tantalizing. I should point out that was fictitious writing that I did. I made that bit up. But before we get into this mystery proper, I'm quite happy now to introduce my new proprietary scale of how real mysteries are. Simple one to five scale, five being historical fact, one being either so totally bogus we know it's fake, or so murky that it's basically mythology. Think King Arthur. Well, actually, King Arthur would probably clock in around about a two on this scale. The Mary Celeste comes in at a four. We know that the ship and the crew were real and its salvage was documented, but we don't know for certain what happened. This one clocks in between a three and a four. We do know that there was almost certainly a real man in the Iron Mask. He's very well attested in contemporary documents as well as recordings after the fact, i.e. secondary sources. But that's where the knowledge stops. A lot of what we know was embellished by writers like Alexandre Dumas and Voltaire in the years following his death. For instance, the idea of him having a mask made of iron was almost certainly made up. One documentary I remember watching found that if you were to wear an iron mask 24-7, you'd be dead in about a week from an infection. Hot, steamy breath, no method of washing, and being rubbed raw by metal all the time is a bad combination. It was reported at the time that he did wear a mask, at least at any time that somebody other than his personal jailer saw him, but the mask was made of black velvet rather than iron. And the impossibly strict restrictions on his talking to others or being seen without the mask are, as far as we can tell, accurate. So this isn't completely made up like some of the Bermuda Triangle accounts, more that it's been very heavily embellished by literary sources, but based on something that is, as far as we can tell, basically true. So with that established, let's get into the timeline. The man first appears in our records in his first internment. We know the rough time he was brought in. Our first record is July of 1669, when the first minister of Louis XIV, King of France, known as the Sun King for how immensely powerful and well-liked he was, sent a letter to the governor of Pignerol Prison in what is now Italy. The minister, the Marquis de Louvois, remember him, he's important, sent specific instructions. The cell for this prisoner is to have multiple layered doors to prevent somebody from the outermost door listening to a conversation in the innermost cell. The prisoner, identified at the time only as Eustache d'Orger, was to be personally attended on by the governor of Pignerol, Benignier de Saint-Mars, once a day, to see if he had any pressing basic needs and to provide them. Now, a little note on names. This episode is going to have a lot of French names. A lot of these names will sound very similar to each other. The prisoner I will refer to as either the prisoner or d'Orger. Remember that, Saint-Mars is the jailer, Louvois is the intermediary between the king and Saint-Mars. Okay? Okay. Now comes the interesting bit. Saint-Mars was given the strictest instructions that if Dorje spoke of literally anything other than his most basic needs, he was to be killed immediately, and under no circumstances was his talking to be encouraged. Dorje was also described as a valet, 
which is basically like a butler. That becomes important later. And as a final note that will also be important later, the handwriting on the letter first describing Eustache d'Orger was written in a handwriting different to the main body of the letter, suggesting either that Louvois dictated the letter or added the name later. Now, Dorger was arrested in Dunkirk or Calais. The specific location is a bit sketchy, but he was arrested by the garrison commander of Dunkirk. The arrest was so surprising and unexpected that the local governor was not actually informed and was only told later that the garrison commander was out hunting and found out after the fact. This was when the first rumours started to circulate, after the man arrived in Pignerol in August. Now, Pignerol prison was interesting in and of itself. It only had a handful of prisoners at a time. It was basically a military installation that was used for prisoners who were usually more noble, who would become embarrassments to the state or their families, to be safely put away until such a time that they could be quietly released later. Dorget was described as unusually quiet and pliable. The other prisoners would moan and complain and constantly try to escape, or were simply mad. Dorget just obeyed the guards and kept to himself, which was unusual. St. Myers applied for Dorget to work as a valet for another important prisoner, a man named Nicolas Fouquet, a nobleman, or Fouquet, a nobleman who was imprisoned by the king for embezzling. But this was on strict orders that while acting as valet for Fouquet, Fouquet was only to ever be with Dorget, no third party could be with them. Fouquet was never expected to be released, so him knowing the man wouldn't have been too bad, but given that others might be, this was probably why Fouquet needed to keep the man under wraps and at all other times he would be isolated. Now, Fouquet died in 1680, but it was discovered that he tunnelled into another prisoner's room, that of his erstwhile friend, the Marquis de Lausanne. Now, he was in prison for eloping with the royal and was expected to be released, so it was speculated that he'd known about Dorget, and he was actually given a lot of false information after the fact. We have records of that happening. When Saint-Mars transferred prisons in 1681, he took Dorget with him. First, they went to exile, also in Italy, and then to a prison in Saint-Marguerite, offshore of Caen. It was on the journey to Saint-Marguerite in May of 1687 that the first rumours of the man wearing the iron mask appear. Once again, when he arrived, he was placed in a cell with the specific multiple-door design. Finally, in 1698, Saint-Mars becomes governor of the Bastille, taking Dorget with him again. This time he was placed in solitary confinement in one of the towers. The prison's second-in-command was to bring him his food, and here we have an account from one of the officers of the prison that the prisoner wore a mask of black velvet presumably more practical than the rumoured iron mask. Then, on the 19th of November 1703, Dorget dies. But he was not buried under the name Eustache Dorget. He was buried under a mononym, Marchioli. That's M-A-R-C-H-I-O-L-Y. This is why we're not even sure if Eustache Dorget was his name. I've been calling him that, and will be, to make it easier for you, the listener, and me, the storyteller. But whether he's Dorget or Marchioli or someone else is basically the subject of this episode. Finally, in 1711, we get a report from the sister-in-law of King Louis, Elizabeth Charlotte, who describes the man as having been watched by two of the king's personal musketeers and to have been killed if ever he was to remove his mask. This was eight years after he died, so it was probably a compilation of courtly rumours, but it does show us something important, that seriously high up people in the court, relatives of the king, still talked about him years after he died. And this was because it was also rumoured that the man had a secret so powerful that if it ever got out, it could topple the glorious reign of the Sun King. Now we get on to the real meat of the mystery. Who was the man in the Iron Mask? We have a rough timeline, 
but do we have any actual evidence? We've got the name, Eustache d'Orger, but that's not really useful at all. Because of the letter's handwriting, the different burial name, and other factors, we can assume that this probably wasn't his real name. The most popular theory, as made popular first by Voltaire, is that the man was a relative of the king. Now, there's several variants of this theory in itself. The first variant is that he was the king's twin brother. Voltaire claimed that the man was an illegitimate half-brother, but in the 1965 essay Le Masque du Fer, Marcel Pagnol, a historian, asserts that a more likely explanation would be a younger twin brother, and therefore a potential complication in succession, and a useful pawn for political enemies. For context, there was an argument at the day, and I guess even to this day, as to which twin counts as the older twin. The older twin being the one that was born first physically, or the one who was born second, therefore further back in the room, and therefore to their logic, conceived first, so you could argue both ways that they were older, and the inverted commas older younger twin could be used as a political pawn for opponents. The main issue with this is that the Queen's childbirths were usually public, so the existence of twins would be a badly kept secret if a secret at all. Pagnol, however, asserts that unusually King Louis's father moved the ceremony onto a side chapel to celebrate immediately after the birth, so maybe they were doing some sort of baby-based sleight-of-hand tricks in there? I don't know. But to add to this, rather interestingly as a little anecdote, the French royal houses of Capet, Valois, Bourbon, and Orléans, four different French royal houses, all had long histories of twin births, which has been considered to be genetically um, a component. So the argument being that King Louis' line, having little bits of all of them, would have had a very strong genetic disposition to having twins. This theory was most famously explored in Alexandre Dumas' book, in the last of his Three Musketeers series, The Man in the Iron Mask is the Identical Twin of the King. The basic idea is this, according to Pagnol, the twin is born, he gets spirited away to the island of Jersey. He later conspires against the king, is arrested in 1669, but due to his noble blood is spared execution. Equally, though, he can't ever be released and his existence must remain a secret. The second big relative theory is that he's actually the father of the king. Now, Louis XIII, the historically attested father of Louis XIV, had been estranged for his wife for some time when he was born, so it is possible that Louis XIV might have been a bastard, and therefore illegitimate in the secession. This theory says that the father fled to the Americas but returned to attempt to extort money from the king and was imprisoned for this. If the secret ever got out, it would collapse the monarchy, because the king would be illegitimate. A further detail comes in the idea that the heir presumptive before Louis XIV was a man called Gaston, the Duke of Orléans. Now, Gaston was an enemy of the politically influential Cardinal Richelieu. You may have heard of him from the Musketeer novels or from real history. Richelieu, according to this theory, hired a man to father Louis XIV to cut his enemy out of the secession. And this theory isn't necessarily ruined by dates. If the man in the Iron Mask was in his early 20s when he had King Louis in 1638, he would have been in his 80s when he died in 1703. Therefore, he could have feasibly fathered the king and been arrested and lived a life to his end date. The time frame is very tight, absolutely no fudge room for dates at all, but it's not impossible that he could have lived to his 80s. Unlikely, given the time period and the conditions he was being kept in, but equally not impossible. Yet another theory suggested it was a general, Vivienne du Blonde, who was imprisoned by the king after retreating from battle, but the battle he retreated from happened in 1691, by which time the prisoner had already appeared on the scene. The evidence for this comes from letters sent in the Great Cipher, a code that was used in King Louis' court to refer to the general as a prisoner who was allowed out, quote, under a mask. 
Some consider that to be incontrovertible, others see the dates as being a torpedo that sinks the theory. This plus the fact that he canonically died six years after the prisoner? I, I don't buy it, basically. In 1801, Pierre-Rue Faziac, a revolutionary lawmaker, stated that the tale of the masked prisoners was an amalgamation of two separate people, Ercole Antonio Mattioli and an imprisoned valet, Eustache d'Orger. The initial theory was expanded by Andrew Lang in his The Valet's Tragedy and Other Stories in 1903, which prevents a theory that Eustache d'Orger was a prisoner's pseudonym of a man called Martin. After his master's execution, the valet was taken to France, but a letter from the French foreign minister has been found rejecting an offer to arrest Martin. He was just not important enough, so that theory kind of peters out and goes nowhere. Now, the main thing that gets pointed out by a guy called John Noon in his book, The Man Behind the Mask of 1988, points out that the minister at the time was concerned more that Dojar should not communicate, Dojar, sorry, that it should not communicate, rather than his face being concealed, that that's the big thing. The only really consistent detail that we have is the triple locked doors, the layered door system. That's the really big evidence of tracking where the prisoner's been because it's such a very specific thing to have been asked for. So Noon comes to the conclusion that San Mars actually played up instructions that the prisoner shouldn't be seen and had to wear a mask to increase his own self-importance. Now, what a humble valet could have seen or done that would necessitate his imprisonment but not execution, that's quite a big question. There's a lot of other theories, but I'll skip now to the final big one, which is that the man was Eustache d'Orger. Now, you might be thinking, well, I thought you said that there wasn't a real person called Eustache d'Orger. There was a real person. The evidence has been found at the time that there was a real person called Eustache d'Orger. The real d'Orger was a son of a captain in Cardinal Richelieu's guards. His full name was Eustache d'Orger de Cavoy. Now, I'm going to call him De Cavoy to save confusion. De Cavoy was involved in a fascinating little episode of history called The Affair of the Poisons. To cut a very long story short, because we might return to it in a later episode, between 1677 and 1682, a large number of French nobles in the king's court were implicated in attempting to use black masses, witchcraft, and poisons to kill their rivals at court. As you can imagine, with the sensibilities of the day, this was quite the scandal. 36 people were executed, and this scandal went all the way to the inner circle of the king himself. Now, there's basically two theories that suggest that the man in the Iron Mask was involved in the affair of the poisons. The first is the De Cavoy theory, insisting that he was a participant in an earlier activity in 1659 before the affair proper. He went to a party where satanic rituals were enacted, among them baptizing a pig as a fish to enable them to eat pork on Good Friday. I know, that's as weird as it sounds. Between that and an incident where he killed a young page boy in a drunken brawl, De Cavoy is forced to resign his office, becomes a black sheep of the family, as well as somebody who becomes intimately involved in courtly scandals. The main problem with this theory is that other evidence exists that suggests that the real De Cavoy died in the late 1680s, in a completely different prison, one that was run by monks specifically catering for the black sheeps of noblemen's families. The evidence cuts a little both ways. Letters between De Cavoy and his siblings and others show that there were orders to severely limit his communication, which checks out, but also that he was at that other prison, and not the Pignarol or the Bastille. It could well be that the moniker Eustache d'Orger was just lifted by this imprisoned man to apply to the man of the Iron Mask, the French nobility at the time are going, ooh, we need to conceal this person's identity, why don't we just lift this person's name? He's being hidden away in another prison, what does it matter? You know, it's just a useful excuse. The second connection 
puts him in a more central role in the affair of the poisons. This comes from the 1930s. Historian Maurice de Vivier found that a man named Auger, without the D, A-U-G-E-R, was a surgeon who sold poisons to French nobles during the affair of the poisons, and thus identified Auger the surgeon with Dorger the prisoner. There was also findings of correspondence between Louvois and Saint-Mars that suggested that Dorger may have poisoned another prisoner. Remember how Dorger was the valet for the guy called Fouquet, Nicolas Fouquet? Well, there were suggestions, based on correspondence between Louvois and Saint-Mars, that they may have ordered Dorger to poison Fouquet. And so the reason then why he leaves merely less than a year after the death of Fouquet is not necessarily because of a transfer for other reasons or this other guy that was involved, but because he had actually, on the orders of his bosses, murdered Fouquet and they needed to get him away to another prison. And this brings up a whole other interesting layer of this, which is that if the man in the Iron Mask was a master poisoner, it could have been that his whole thing was that he was a weapon for French nobles placed in their highest prisons in order to kill their political rivals who they couldn't get to. Now, I think that that theory holds a lot of weight. We'll return to it in a little bit, but I, my money is a little bit on that one. Once again, I will just give a very brief rundown of the names that we have, just because it gets very confusing. We have Louvois. He's the man who the French king tells to appoint the governor of Pignerol prison to be the prisoner's personal guard and to manage the finances for this whole thing. Then there's Saint-Mars. He's the governor initially of Pignerol prisoner who later becomes the prisoner's, uh, basically his personal jailer and for whom the prisoner occasionally acts as a valet. Then we have Eustache Dorget, the pseudonym of the man in the Iron Mask. There's Nicolas Fouquet, the man who was the first person that Eustache Dorget acted as a valet for whilst in prison. Then there's Eustache Dorget de Cavoy, who is the real-life figure with that name. There's Orger, the name of a otherwise unnamed surgeon in the French royal court who specialised in poisons. And then there's Marchioli, which is the name that uh, Eustache Dorget was buried under, which you have to admit sounds a little bit like that other name that we mentioned earlier of the Italian prisoner whose life was conflated with Eustache Dorget, apparently. Well, now that we have all of the theories of the names of people laid out in front of us, what do we make of the man in the Iron Mask? Well, I'll tell you, before I put my specific money on any one theory, I know I mentioned it a little bit in the previous section, but before I really put my bet down, I will say that I think the most important thing to consider under all of this, between the dates and the births and the deaths in the prisons, is the unique circumstances of the man's imprisonment. He was to be kept behind several layered locked doors with a velvet mask on his head whenever talking to anyone other than Saint-Mars with absolutely no communication outside of his immediate needs. But he was also allowed to be a valet, serving as an attendant, albeit a silent one, to noblemen. The circumstances of his imprisonment seem so needlessly complicated, but the evidence we have suggests that they really did jump through all of these hoops. If you want him to stay quiet... Why not just execute him? Today you wouldn't, because the death penalty is barbaric and silly, but in those days it wasn't seen as such. So it would mean that for whatever reason, the prisoner was worth keeping alive at great expense and effort. 
unless he talked, in which case he was to be immediately executed. But if he was a nobleman, which would explain the former, why would he be allowed to be a valet? Today, one can often underestimate how important class was historically. It just would not do for a noble prisoner to be a manservant, even to hide his identity. It's possible that they did that for a reason, to draw people off the idea that he was a nobleman. Oh, a nobleman could never be a valet, therefore this must just be no one. But if he really was no one, why not just kill him? Why go through all the trouble of keeping him alive? Why would he be so important that it was worth keeping him alive at great expense and cost and effort, but not so important that you couldn't just kill him? So, the most likely explanation to me is that the man in the Iron Mask is the surgeon Auger. Now, I'm aware that there are big flaws with this theory. I'm aware that it doesn't necessarily go with the rumors that immediately came out of the noble's court, but I think that the way that this story makes the most sense is if you see the man in the Iron Mask as a pawn in the game of French politics at the time, which was very complicated and very deadly. If he was the surgeon, the poisoner, Auger, he would be humble enough that it would be fine with him serving as a valet, that would not diminish social standing any amount, but he would be important enough to be kept alive at great expense. And sure, people can play their guessing games as to who he really is, but the reason that he's being kept a secret is so that nobody assumes that he is the poisoner. Everybody thinks that he's just this other nobleman, and it's a convenient excuse to move him from prison to prison. Okay, you move him to this place, this person who nobody knows anything about, nobody knows his name, he acts as a valet for somebody for a little while, and then that person mysteriously dies. And then, oh, for a completely unrelated reason, we need to move to a different prison. It's the perfect crime, basically. Now, I'm aware that there's only one instance of this having happened, which is arguably Fouquet, but we do have the assertion in the letter sent by Louvois to Saint-Mars, or the suggestion at least, that, hey, by the way, can you get your prisoner to bump off this Fouquet guy for me? That seems like a very specific instruction. Why not just orchestrate it with the guards? He's, you're asking the governor of the prison. He could just make anything look like an accident. Why bother going through the avenue of, hey, remember that prisoner I sent you? the guy who I'm helping you pay for, that we're keeping under these weirdly strict instructions. Hey, could you have him kill his uh, erstwhile boss? For me, that would be really useful. And I think that really goes away to explaining it. It explains the circumstances of his arrest. It explains why they don't just kill him, because he's useful. But he's not so important that they didn't consider killing him. He's not so important that if he was to leak any secrets, they wouldn't just immediately put him in the ground. He's important enough to keep, but not so important that he's entirely being kept under any circumstance. I think that basically ticks all the boxes. I will just chuck another little hat into this ring for a second, though. There's another example of a similar situation in history that does revolve around a nobleman. Tsar Ivan VI of Russia, 1740-1764. He was made emperor at two months old and deposed after a year, imprisoned and had his identity concealed. For 20 years or so, until he was killed by guards during a breakout attempt, the once Tsar had his name and image completely removed from history, scratched off coins, and he didn't wear a mask, but his true identity was a secret, even to his jailers. For years until his death, he was just simply called the Nameless One. And what that changes about your opinions, I'd be rather interested to know as to whether that makes you think it's more or less likely to be a noble, knowing that we do have a somewhat similar historical precedent.
It's also worth noting that in 2015, a haul of documents was found, over 100 million in total, by the French National Archives. And they found 800 documents pertaining to San Mars. And it was reported, through these documents, uh, letters and records, that San Mars was diverting away funds that were meant for the man in the iron mask towards himself. Funds that were being given out of the king's own purse. Now what does that say about our prisoner? It says he was important enough to be given funds from the king's own pocket, but not important enough that San Mars was willing to embezzle funds away from that. Maybe San Mars was really just that ballsy. Or maybe he knew that the prisoner would never be able to tell anyone. The 2015 documents also note the conditions of the prisoner. Kept in secrecy, wearing a mask, in a simple cell with no luxuries. So, what does that say? We have relatively modern finds of these documents that actually go some way to proving the existence of the prisoner. Basically, all we have in terms of evidence for the prisoner's existence are letters, correspondence, and records, prison records. The prison records of these specialist cells being built, of prisoners transferred in and out, the name Eustache Dolger popping up here, there, and everywhere, the letters from Saint-Mars to Saint-Mars, uh, from Louvois, um, from the king's ministers, uh, all sorts of correspondence pertaining to the guy, and then in the immediate aftermath, or even actually whilst he was alive, I said the earliest, 1687 was the earliest reference we see in French popular culture to the man, and then in the wake of his death, Voltaire and Alexandre Dumas writing about him uh, relatively soon after he died. And then even that uh, 1711 record of the French courtly discussions going on about him, he appears very quickly whilst he's still alive and then immediately in the aftermath of his death in the French popular culture sphere, and then he enters the popular uh, culture consensus. Now, this produces for us the first records that we have of the exaggerations, that the mask was made of iron, that he had musketeers guarding him, that he was involved with Cardinal Richelieu, or he might have been, but you know, the actual exaggerations. It also produces for us the first examples of his existence. And whilst on the one hand it could have just been a rumour that got out of hand before he appears in the French popular culture cycle, we do have those letters, the letters of Saint-Mars, the letters of the prisons, that show that they, before this was a rumour, were discussing this man a long time before. He was arrested first in 1669 and he doesn't appear in popular culture until 1687 at the earliest. So for that intermediary time, if they just wanted to make up a rumour about, oh yes, we have this nobleman in prison in order to possibly, I don't know, discredit the king's political enemies or something like that, they could have just made up the rumour in 1669. Why wait nearly 20 years for this plan to come to fruition? I think it makes more sense that it was a uh, an act of convenience, a tool politically used, that this guy, this prisoner, was arrested, noble enough that they kept him around, poor enough that they could have bumped him off if they wanted to, but thought, actually, we can get use out of this guy. We can use him as a man on the inside of these prisons to get rid of people who we actually want to get rid of, but we don't want to be seen publicly executing because it would be bad for our image or because they're too noble. I think that duplicitousness is the key to all of this. And it's a duplicitousness that you see popping up again and again throughout the French court at this time. Everybody's getting involved in it. Saint-Mars is embezzling funds in made for the prisoner. All of the prisoners in these prisons eloped with someone or embezzled from someone or committed this treason or that treason. There's shadowy figures all over the place in this story, which I think is what makes it such a perfect mystery. And what really adds to the mystery of this case is that this, I think, is as much as we're ever going to know. 
we did find that big hole in 2015 that we didn't expect to. There were documents that were kind of like the uh, dark matter of the historical world, sort of. They were, you know, we knew that they were there somewhere, but thought lost to history, and then they were uncovered. It was quite a lot of documents and quite a lot pertaining to this particular case, actually, that, you know, we expected to find. But I don't know that we'll find more. This seems like the actual meat of the historical mystery was kept very well under wraps at the time. You know, this was a man that was designed to be hidden from the public eye, and was. And just enough was released that people had a media frenzy back then, and in the years since, both in his popular culture pictures uh, and in these sort of historical discussions of the actual person, just enough was known to keep these discussions going, but not enough for any concrete identity. And that's what I think makes this just the most perfect little mystery, because it's got just enough to keep us going. We know just enough. The man was probably real. We have the records of his imprisonment, we have the records of the letters, the funds that were sent, the cells that were built. I did consider very briefly that it might have all just been a big scam for San Mars and Louvois to try and take money out of the king's pocket, but it seems a little bit needlessly convoluted given that they kept moving prisons and building new cell doors for this guy. Uh, we do have records that the cells specifically were built and that, you know, food was given, prisoner transfer dates. Um, it seems like a lot to go through for just a basic embezzlement scandal. So there we have it, the man in the iron mask. Will we ever know who he was? I doubt it, just because, you know, we don't have any DNA evidence. We're never going to find any. The grave he was buried in has been lost to time. The names he was buried under were different to the names he was kept under. I personally think the most likely theory is that he was the poisoner slash surgeon Auger. I am also down for the theory that he was a brother of the king, um, or possibly the father of the king. I think the French general theory is relatively weak. I think the Descavoy theory is relatively weak, even though it's so convenient that he just had the same name. But I think that that was an intentional misdirection by whoever was imprisoning him. But there we have it. That's probably all the information we're ever going to have, and the most satisfying conclusion we're ever going to have to the story of the man in the iron mask. This has been Demystified with Ashley Styles. This episode was written, produced, and researched by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting help from Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Production Crate, for all your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.